Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk with creative Mississippians. I'm your host, Maria Zarang, Folk and Traditional Arts Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm talking with writer and filmmaker Maximus Wright. Wright was born in Yazoo City and graduated from Tougaloo College in Jackson, where he has lived since 2004. He is a multi-hyphenate artist who has expressed his creativity through music, comedy, literature, and film. He's also a dedicated mentor to Mississippi artists and is passionate about making his home state into a haven for filmmakers and storytellers. Hello, Maximus. I'm so excited to have you on the show and get to learn more about you and your work. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I think that's, I know that's the first time I've been called multi-hyphen, so thank you. <laughs> well, you know, and you sent me your bio, and I've been researching you, and uh, I'm like, wow, you know, you dabble in so many different genres, so it's like, perfect, multi-hyphen it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, yeah, um, let's kind of, I like to kind of start at the beginning, so... Okay. You're from Yazoo City, yeah. and uh, if you want to talk about that, you can go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know, I always tell people that uh, Mississippi uh, arguably has the greatest writers in the world, but I say the greatest storytellers have to come through Yazoo City. <laughs> uh, when you talk about Zig Ziglar, you start talking about Willie Morris, you start talking about Jerry Clower, you know, even though you're talking about a motivational speaker, you're talking about a, a comedic genius, and you're talking about a writer, they were great storytellers. Oh, so yeah. it kind of soaked into the soil. Uh, I often tell people that even though Ziegler, Morris, and Clow are known, the greatest storyteller was my uncle, Uncle Uncle Oscar. <laughs> and and as a kid, I just remember being captivated how he would just have everyone's attention, telling these jokes and telling these stories. And I always wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be him because I wanted people to be captivated with my words the same way they were captivated with his. So Yezu City was a great place to grow up in. You know, the people were just, you know, they were good folk. Yeah. And uh, we grew up, and uh, life was simple <laughs> at that time. So the people were colorful, you know, so there were great things to kind of build the foundation for telling stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, it seems like it's part of your environment, a part of your family, and you got a mm. lot. You have four children, yes, and uh, yes. you have at least one artist in the family from what I was reading, your daughter. Well, my daughter, she actually is the reason I kind of got into film. Um, she's currently living in New York. The goal was to have kept her here, and that's kind of what made me jump into it. I got into getting more into filmmaking because I thought it would keep her here. So um, nine years later, she's living in New York, and I'm on a mission to make 100 filmmakers in the next seven years. So, Yeah, I know. I want to talk about that. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so taken by that story of you jumping into film because your daughter's desire yeah. to kind of be in the industry, but there wasn't really, uh, you know, space here, you know, mm-hmm. at least at that time when she was little. Right. Do you have hopes that she may come back or of course i do yeah. you know uh we um we went to brooklyn um last year and spent some time with her and so she was just driving around and the crazy thing is she drives just like a new yorker now so that scared me to death 
But she would take me to the places where Home Alone was shot. Oh, yeah. And she was like, Dad, this is why I moved here, because all the movies we used to watch as kids, they're here. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that was the first time I connected the dots that literally this was her childhood being played out because, you know, we watch Home Alone. We watch all these great, you know, animations and stuff like this. And a lot of them were based in New York. So in her mind, this is where I wanted to go. You know, if hindsight's twenty twenty, I probably want to show her anything. I've just been showing her nothing but Mississippi movies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the hope is that one day she will. But, you know, yeah. as we've both matured, you have to give people, you have to give your children and people the opportunity to dream. And their path may not be yours. But I'm, I'm grateful because in my efforts to keep her here, it helped me see my calling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. Well, um, you know, you got into film a little bit later in life. So mm-hmm. I want to just go back a little bit. Okay, okay. Let's go back to college. So you went to Tougaloo. Yes. Um, yes. Tougaloo is in Jackson. So you've mm-hmm. kind of been here in Jackson ever since, right? Well, I, I lived in Cincinnati for a oh, while. Okay, I lived okay. in Georgia for a while. Mm-hmm. I lived in Louisiana for a while. But oh. eventually I came back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Tougaloo, was, Tougaloo is, is a special place. You know, when I, I was fortunate to have some amazing teachers, uh, Dr. Jerry Ward uh, was, and, doc, and Dick Johnson was a, my philosophy advisor. And uh, Dr. Ward was the English professor that I learned a lot. He's the foremost authority in Richard Wright, on Richard Wright in the world. Mm-hmm. And to come through his classes, <laughs> one, you didn't think you were going to be able to pass because he was that hard-nosed teacher that just like, if it's not perfect, you have no reason of being here. And he had no reason, you know, he kind of he kind of ruled the class with an iron fist and literally had people terrified about even taking his class. But, you know, coming from Yezu City, we kind of like challenges, you know, and I kind of like this personality because it kind of reminded me of the folk back home. Yeah. So by taking his class, it really helped develop my writing, st- my writing style. At the time, I didn't think I would ever be writing. You know, I, I was preparing for law school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I thought I was going to go to law school. So my major was in philosophy and religion, and my emphasis was in English. So I'm probably about 12 hours short of a double major <laughs> yeah. in English. But I was preparing for the LSAT. I thought that I was going to be going to uh, University of Berkeley Law School. So, um, but here, I that love for writing started to develop. I, I didn't think I was a good writer. Um, you know, because, you know, technical writing and creative writing, they're two different things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that we were taught at Tougaloo was very technical writing. You know, like how do you write research papers or how do you write papers that can be proofs? Uh, so creative writing, even though we had creative writing courses on the liberal arts college, it was more about the scholar, the scholarship of writing. So I didn't think I was a great writer, but I found out that I was a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. So that served as the basis for me writing. And I've written three novels since then. Oh, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. But so w- it was really in Tougaloo where you decided, like, yeah, I kind of, uh, I like writing, I like storytelling. And did you say, like, I want to be a writer towards the end? No, I, I, did, I had no clue. I had no clue. I, I knew I knew I loved storytelling. I didn't think I was a good writer at all because mm-hmm. Dr. Ward was like a mercenary. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, you get your papers back and there's blood all over it, all the red red mm-hmm. ink. But I, I was I was learning. I can't say that I enjoyed it at the time. Yeah. Because I didn't see a future in it. It mm-hmm. was just what I had to do to, to graduate and get to my goal of going to law school. Oh, okay. So it was after Tougaloo yeah. that you really kind of made made that switch. Now, did you first start in sketch comedy? Was that? Yeah, man. Listen, you know, growing up watching shows like Hee Haw and, um, 
you know, Andy Griffin and, you know, Sanford and Son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, comedy was just, my grandmother and I used to watch television. That was just, that was our entertainment. So comedy was that thing. You know, Gomer Pyle growing up. Uh, you know, all of these slapstick type comedy, you know, Carabinet, you know, those things, Flip Wilson. Yeah. So um, comedy was just kind of our way of communicating back home. You know, my uncle was a very funny guy. So yeah. the, st the stories he was telling were always funny. So it was just a natural progression. You know, I just wrote what I experienced, you know. You, you know, the saying is you're only what you've seen, heard, and experienced. And comedy was just a part of our everyday life. So writing funny stories just made sense. Yeah. And we were doing that pretty much to promote some of the events that we were doing. We were doing giveaways, you know, for Christmas. And, I, you know, and I was trying to figure out how can we get folks to come to the event. So we started making a little sketch comedy stuff, just to get folks to laugh and say, hey, we're going to go check this thing out. Mm. And that's where it started. Wow. And so it was kind of like a, like a side gig from your day oh, job. Yeah. What were you doing then? Well, <laughs> at that time, you know, my family, we owned uh, Dupre Med Companies. Oh, okay. So uh, for years, I had I'd established about a couple of prosthetics companies and helped people manage those companies. Yeah. And at the time, my family wanted to have an adult daycare center. So I was pretty much creating these companies for people and helping them manage it. And I was doing comedy on the side, comedy and sketch writing on the side. Wow. Now, you also kind of did a little bit of music, too, right? Mm -hmm. Producing, writing. Yeah, you did yeah. some music videos, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Dexter Allen... A good friend of mine, he, he came to me uh, when we were doing a sketch comedy, and he was saying, you know, uh, you can do a music video. I'm like, nah. <laughs> and then he came back and said, you can do a music video. I want you to do my music video called Coming Home to Mississippi, and it's featuring Bobby Rush. So now I'm terrified mm -hmm. because not only do you want me to produce your music video, you want me to do it with this blues icon. And I'm like, Dexter, I can't do this. And he's like, oh, you're going to do it. So after we did it... Um, one of the uh, his business partners, Colleen Sanders, she came to me and she said that you are going to do movies. She said, I can see it. She said, you can do movies. And one day you're going to be in New York. I see you in these places. And at this time, I'm like, surely this lady's crazy. Yeah. Please give me this check so I can go ahead and get on out of here. But to her credit, one year after that, I had written my first script. Wow, so that was the seed, huh? That was the seed. That was your first time behind a camera doing the music videos? Well, no, we had done a lot of sketch comedy. Oh, with the, the com yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so it was like yeah. video so shows. Was, yeah, it wasn't just yeah. writing. It was also videos. Uh -huh. So that's what made him want me to do his, uh, uh, gotcha, his, yeah. his music video. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. But then before you kind of did that, you also wrote three novels. So Yeah, well, interestingly... I was I had started writing I had started filming my first film, mm. my first feature, and oh. we ran out of money. <laughs> but the the crew loved the script so much they was because we you know it was my first time writing the script you know you know scripts probably one twenty average in mm -hmm. pages I had wrote one hundred and eighty five pages so I had to cut out a lot of the script yeah and they were saying well look why don't you turn this into a book you know. Maybe to kind of help us create some sales and spark some interest to come back and complete the film. And I was like, man, I don't know how to write a book. I'm not going to write a book because, like I said, you know, Dr. Ward is in the back of my mind. It's like, no, if you don't, if you're not a, you know, 
of Richard Wright, then don't you ever attempt to write a book. If you're not James Baldwin, don't write a book. Yeah. So I, they convinced me. We wrote the book, and people loved the book. They absolutely loved the book, and it helped finance the rest of the film. Now, was that was your first book called so, Profit, or was no, it Soul, soul Damage? Soul okay. Damage, yeah. Soul oh, Damage so the was first the first. One was a, uh, soul Damage. I want to talk about that. Can you tell our listeners what the premise of that one is? Soul well, damage. the premise is it's about a young man who who was abused as a child. You know, he was abused by an older woman. And as he grew up, it looked like he had everything, but he was, in a, he was unable to have uh, committed relationships because of the trauma. So it's this journey that we take with him about how does he confront those demons? Mm-hmm. How does he uh, address them? And it, because he finds this girl who's unlike any other women he, women he ever dealt with. And, and she was quirky. She, didn't, she wasn't this supermodel type. She was just this regular girl, but she evoked something in him that he never felt before. So now he's going to find um, counsel with people who've had good relationships on how can he have one with this girl because he feels like this woman could possibly change his life. So we take this journey with him of confronting his demons, and it's a love story. Ultimately, it becomes a love story. Well, what I think is so interesting about Soul Damage is that you kind of continue the story in your next novel, right? My name is Lola. Yeah. yeah. So I was reading about that. Tell them what's the connection between these two novels. Well, Soul Damage is the, uh, My Name is Lola is the prequel. And uh, it's about the mother of Sirius. And this all came because one of my fraternity brothers made a review. And I didn't like his review. You know, he, he, he talked about, he blamed Lola for how serious had become. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, and it was a sensitive subject. And what was what was powerful about it was, you know, Lola had a drug issue, you know, uh, that happened to her when she was young. And my friend at the time, you know, my friend to this day, his mom was on drugs when he was younger. And his point was just because people are on drugs don't mean the drugs are the problem. Sometimes they just make bad decisions. Hi, I'm Maria Zarang. You're listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Maria Zarang, Folk and Traditional Arts Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today we're here with writer and filmmaker Maximus Wright. Maximus, welcome back. Thanks for the break. Uh, thanks for you know being with us. And we just took a break, and you were in the middle of talking about mm-hmm. um, your novel, uh, My Name is Lola, yeah. which is a continuation of the story um, from soul damage. So, mm-hmm. uh, you were saying that 
um, you had gotten a response from a reader um, that the reader just didn't really connect with the mother, the main character's mother, and he kind of villainized her in a way. And you said, there's more to that story. I'm going to write that story. And that, you know, became your next novel. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, um, like I said, we had started the film. And so the film was on pause, so I wrote a book. So the book was kind of out of a necessity. So this writing Lola was more intentional because it, it spawned from a friend saying, you know, look, she, it was her fault. And I didn't intend for the character to be a villain. You know, I, I, I wanted people to be empathetic with, with her and her plight. So I was like, okay, soul damage didn't give enough, so let's create the backstory. And in creating the backstory... You know, we, we you know, life is not always black and white, you know, it's it's nuanced, you know, there there are complexities. So and I love characters that are complex, you know, they just give you a lot to develop, you know. And so we developed Lola's backstories and we brought and created this whole world of the influences that helped shape who she was. So now you have a better picture of where she started, what was her intentions, and how did she get to where she is. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And well, I'm curious, did, did your friend, you know, did he read My Name is he Lola? Did. And he what did, did he think? He did. Well, you know, I, I have some I have some really bad friends. I really need better friends. <laughs> he was kind of stuck in his opinion, but um, he did acknowledge that the book did give a better light. Yeah. Yeah, so he did acknowledge that. And he, uh, he, he enjoyed both books, but... Um, you can't you can't negate people's personal experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned is that when you do write something or create something in any form, eventually it becomes the readers. It's not yours anymore. Yes. You know, they have to interpret it and now it's intermingled in their stories. Oh yeah. I was just talking about this with my coworker, another host on this show, Leslie, yesterday. We were talking about this. Mm-hmm. Letting it go when you write something. Is it really hard for you to let these characters go or kind of see other people's, you know, interpretation of your characters? The first time it was very hard. Yeah. The first time I realized that, oh, wow, that's not how I intended. That's not how I intended for this character to be. And when I realized they started taking and they ran off with, you know, with things that I was not thinking about at all. But I think over time I realized, you know, something that's that's there. We do. We all do it. You know, we you know, we see our favorite characters on television and we based off our own experiences, we create these unique bonds. Oh, yeah. So uh, once I realized that it's, it's easy now, you know, it's, it's yours. You know, yeah. I know what I wrote, but ultimately it becomes yours. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's what I love about literature. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, talking about being a human being, making those connections through these characters. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's really interesting that uh, you have kind of two um, iterations of, of these works, film, uh, mm-hmm. film, and then a novel. Mm-hmm. So the first work, it was the film first, then came the novel. Mm-hmm. The second one, it was the novel, novel first. then came the film. Right. Was it difficult to adapt uh, to the different mediums? No, uh, not for me. Uh, because like I tell you, I come from a storyteller's world. Mm-hmm. So even when I'm writing, I see it visually. So, you know, a lot of times when writers are writers, you know, they're, you know, they have a different structure of how they're doing it. Me, I'm describing what I see in my head, whether it's on the page or it's on the, on the screen. It's the same process for me. I'm just having to now say the words and put them down as opposed to telling people how to look, feel and carry themselves. But it's all visual to me. I'm just adding the words to kind of fit the symbolism that I see in my head. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. kind of like a direct translation in a way, you right. know, between the two formats. For me, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I was reading. Um, you said that you had always been a fan of movies, and what you really liked mm-hmm. about movies was the dialogue. Yes. And so, was that really kind of your first love of movies? Is like that, you know, just developing an ear for the way people talk. Well, I've always been a, a people watcher. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I, you know, I was kind of shy, introverted kid, and and when I would see characters, well, I'm saying characters. When I would see people, you know, the way they interact and the way they talk. Case in point, I was in a bridge program, and there's a guy by the name of Bobby Jones, right? Bobby Jones, I always say Bobby Jones wasn't a very handsome guy, but for whatever reason, the girls loved him, and I wanted the girls to love me too. <laughs> but Bobby would just go do things like he would get in the cafeteria and he would cockle like a rooster and people just bust out and start screaming. They would just laugh. I mean, it's like he, he could do no wrong. People just loved him. And I would watch someone come out to him and do the exact same thing. And now they're throwing trays at that guy. That fascinated me. I was like, what is it about Bobby that he's saying this? And someone says the same things he says, but there's something extra about Bobby. There's something that gives him the right to say things that other people can't say. So watching people in those dynamics were intriguing to me. And then I started to realize about how characters were made, you know, how authenticity in the character, being truthful to the character. Um, I went to Bobby, and I'll never forget this. I said, I, I went to him and I said, man, tell me what you're doing. Tell me your secret. And he was like, you want me to tell you my secret, Lil Yazoo? He was real loud. And I was like, yeah, tell me your, tell me your secret. Lil Yazoo, you want to know my secret? And then he let that rooster crow go. So when he would do that, that was always symbolic that he was about to embarrass somebody. So now it's my turn. So now <laughs> I'm looking at him and I'm thinking like, well, I can't fight him because he was like 6'5", 230 pounds. And I was, I was probably 120 pounds soaking wet. But when the crowd started running because they running towards us because they just knew Bob was finna give them one, he got close to me and he whispered in my ear. He said, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. And he walked through the crowd that circled around us. Even though no one heard what we said, I felt completely naked because I didn't understand what he was saying. What Bob, it took me years to understand. Bob was saying, I'm just true to who I am. That authenticity reaches people. Yeah. That's what I do with characters. I make sure the characters are true to themselves. So those interactions with people, watching folk on television, you could tell good actors because it doesn't seem forced. It Mm. seems to be authentic. Yeah. And you relate to those characters because they're not acting. They're just showing you a different side of them. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Yeah. What a great foundation to yeah. both of these art forms that you practice then, kind of those observational skills mm-hmm. and just passion for people. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's what it seems. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about film because, you know, as we had said, you know, you got into film later in in life. And mm-hmm. I guess it was, you know, it wasn't, it really was in response to your daughter's desire mm-hmm. to work in the industry. So is that what you would kind of say? <clears throat> I think that was the, I think that was the universe's way of, Nudging me in the right direction, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, I I believe that when we align with what we're supposed to do, it's, there's a book, uh, The Alchemist, you know. It has a line in it that says that, that when we set out to do what we're supposed to do, the universe conspires to help us. And and that's what I feel has happened in my life. You know, yeah. I, I always wanted to be rich and successful and all these things. But 
I, it was for the wrong reasons. But when I think I, I said yes to trying to do this to, for my daughter, thinking it was for her, it really was for me. Yeah. It was really for the mission that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point about when you said about the dialogue and stuff like this, film is interesting because film is show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn how to create without telling. You have to show. Um, dialogue is one aspect, but 93% of all communication is nonverbal. Right. So how do you say me and Maria were having a good time? You know, we don't say it. You, you see the smiles that are on our face when you say something and then I make a point and you light up and you say a point and I light up. We have to show that, not say that. Yeah. So um, this whole process um, with my daughter, the whole process with film, it really opened up areas that I just closed because growing up in rural Yazoo County, filmmaking was not an option. Yeah. It was not a viable option. Yeah. So mm. what she did was my desperation to keep her here just really awakened what I was really meant to do. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, I was reading and you said that your <clears throat> first film was like your film school, right? <laughs> Talk about that. I mean, it seems like you really had to learn on the job by doing. What was that experience like on, on your first film? It was atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was terrifying. Um, I, I remember one day, you, you got to realize I had no experience, I had no contacts, and I had no money. And how in the world is it that I'm up here making this film? The film came about because I couldn't go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. It was like this story just kept riding me. And it's like, you're not going to rest until you start writing it. I didn't know the format on how to write a script. I started looking at models, and I wrote in a notebook. I wrote longhand. I was just writing it out just so I could get some rest at night and go to sleep. But the story was writing itself. So here I am in this weird situation where people would just come to me and say, hey, what you got? And I'm like, well, hey, I'm, I'm working on the script. They're like, I'd like to be a part of it. I'd like to be this. And and then it really got scary when people start saying, well, we want to invest. You know, I would tell them the story, and they was like, that's a great story. I've never heard that. Yeah. But when we got on film, we had hired a crew to come in from Houston to kind of help out. Some days I didn't even want to go to the set because my stomach was hurting so bad. I was so afraid. I was so terrified. I didn't even know how to make the calls. Yeah. You know, the DP would sometimes be sitting up here like, Max, you need to say action. <laughs> it was that bad. It was that yeah. bad. I They'll say, we're moving to six. And I'm like, what is that? You know, they'll say, okay, do you want to go back to one? I'm like, there's a two. <laughs> I mean, I'm just lost. You know, I mean, I'm just don't know anything. Yeah. But, but one day while in the middle of a panic attack, I prayed. Mm-hmm. You know, I really settled myself and I prayed and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And it's just like this calmness came over me and said, you're the only one that know what this is supposed to look like. Yeah, that's true. And you're the only one signing the checks. <laughs> so I called everyone in and I said, look, I may not know what these calls are, but that's what I hired you for. I'm just going to keep talking and you all figure out what I'm trying to say. Because last I check, I'm the one signing the checks. Anybody got a problem with that? Everybody want to stay on? <laughs> <laughs> so I learned on the fly. You yeah. know, it was on the job training. And uh, there's a good guy here by the name of Terrence Jones. Terrence Jones is a grip. He's a director, producer. And he came to me after we wrapped the first half. He said, you know something? It was obvious you had no idea what you were doing. He said, but I watched you grow in this set and you grew about 15 years. 
yeah. on this set. And I, and I appreciate him for that, for telling me the truth. But, yeah, it was film school. It yeah. Was on the job training. And just as a reminder, that was for Soul Damage. That was, for that soul was the Damage. first one. First feature, yes. Now, how the second feature was My Name is Lola. It's a short. It's a short. It's a short. Okay. And the interesting thing about <laughs> Lola for the short, you know, we had used red, uh, uh, epic red dragons to shoot Soul Damage. So we still had finished Soul Damage. And we were testing a camera that just happened to shoot Lola. Mm. So it was actually testing the camera to make sure we can go back and finish all damage. Wow. Yeah. So it was a test. And Red a Dragon test. is a type of camera then? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Hi, I'm Maria Zerang. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Okay, you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Maria Zarang, and I'm here with filmmaker and writer Maximus Wright. And we're on MPB Think Radio. Uh, Maximus, thanks for joining us and being with us here today. So before the break, you were talking about your second film, My Name is Lola, which is a short. And Mm -hmm. you were kind of working on it while testing out a new camera. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to talk about for that film that you want to share with us? You know, I thought Soul Damage was going to be the only film I shot. I thought I was going to be one and done. I was just going to get this out of my system and be able to go to sleep at night. That's what I was thinking. So when Lola came around, we were actually testing the camera, you know, to see could we go back and finish Soul Damage with. But uh, something very powerful happened while filming Lola. That was a young man by the name of Ezel Sultan. Ezel Sultan was a guy who was from the streets. If I would have seen Ezel Sultan on the streets, I'd been afraid of him, you know. But he came to the audition, and he, he was a guy just trying to turn his life around. You know, he was like, I'm going to try something different. You know, never thought it would be a chance I could act. He had, you know, he had done some time in jail, uh, done misdemeanor stuff, does bonehead stuff as a kid, you know, had gotten out trying to rehabilitate himself and even had worked as a sanitation worker, everything. So he came to the audition for something else we were doing. He didn't get the part, but he just had this unique look about himself. He had this unique look, and, and there was an energy about him, you know, that was really believable. So when we were doing Lola, there was a character by the name of Black Steve, right? Black Steve was a bad guy, you know, and I looked at him. I said, you know, he looks menacing. So I asked him to come in and test for it. And, you know, well, what happened after he didn't get the part, he never would leave. <laughs> I mean, wherever we were showing up, this guy would just show up. He And, you know, and before we know it, he's carrying equipment in. You know, no one asked him. He's carrying equipment. He's sitting around. Everybody leave. You like just he would just make he made himself indispensable. He wouldn't go anywhere. So I was like, man, I got this character. I'm gonna try it. Had never acted before. He he he. First time, first time he did the lines, it was horrible. It was <laughs> absolutely horrible. It was a. It was just. It was just jacked up in every way. But he kept at it. He kept at it. He wouldn't leave me alone. He kept at it. And finally, something clicked in him. 
and he became Black Steve. Wow. He showed up on set and immediately stole the show. He was actually more prolific than Lola. His character, and, you know, I, I guess he was a nice-looking guy, but the girls on the set was like, you know, he had a scene where he had to choke Lola, and they were, people were raising their hand like, can I be choked next? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> but Ezel, um, he, 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 it changed his life, man. He actually got parts on um, uh, uh, the Walking Dead series that was in uh, Louisiana. Oh, wow. I mean, he just turned his whole life around. Unfortunately, Ezell died a couple years ago, died in a car accident. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, But his presence made me realize this is not just about film. Mm-hmm. You know, this is about people's lives. This is about giving people a chance that they didn't think they could have and giving them an opportunity to become whoever they were supposed to be. And uh, each year we have what we call the People's Choice Award at the Jackson Film Festival, and it's named in honor of Ezell Sultan. Oh, yeah. So, Ezel Sultan, my name Lola, changed my life forever. Mm. Wow. Well, that's great that y'all were able to honor the, him in that mm-hmm. way at the festival, yeah. which, yeah, we will talk about. I want to get into the festival a little bit. But, yeah. um, well, um, we talked about these two films that you've made. Uh, mm-hmm. What I want to talk about now is all the mentorship that you do. Uh, you seem to be a pillar of the filmmaking community in, in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And your goal, you had mentioned this at the top of the hour, is to have 100 filmmakers in seven years. Yes. And yes. you want to help kind of nurture and develop that talent. So mm-hmm. how is that going? And kind of how do you kind of want to accomplish that goal? Well, you know, we back in 2015, we started doing master classes. You know, this was just a way to kind of supplement income. But there were so many people who had so much talent, you know, they just didn't know where to go. And one of the things that I noticed, even with the crew that came here, they, they have a tendency to want to look down on us because we're from Mississippi. But when you really look at it, you can't say entertainment without saying Mississippi. Greatest singers, songwriters, comedians, writers, whatever. We should also lead in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But we don't have enough infrastructure to support this. Our kids feel that if they're going to they're going to succeed, they got to leave here. Mm-hmm. So what I realized was as people start calling me to come produce their projects out of state, I'm like, it's easier for me to do it at home. It's cheaper. The people are friendlier and we just got better resources. We have been bamboozled because we think that we're not a film state. We have always been a film state. These bigger film companies have always come here and made projects. They just didn't tell you it was made here in Mississippi. Parts of Cadillac Records was shot here in Mississippi. Walk the Line was shot here in Mississippi. There are so many stories that were shot right here in Mississippi. Even when you think about Get On Up, France is Tharmar Hall. Mm. But they don't give you, you don't get credit for that unless you don't know. But Mississippi has always been a great spot for film. It's just that the people don't understand this as a commodity or the infrastructure it takes. Yeah. So what I'm committed to doing was, I'm like, we just need to make more filmmakers because it's not enough to just have a Walter Payton, you know, get drafted and go to the NFL, but you got a Walter Payton, a Willie Titan, and a Jerry Rice, then that's going to make people come look and say, well, what's going on in Mississippi? So my goal is let's make more filmmakers. Let's make more filmmakers because the basic of it is writing anyway, so writing is in our blood. Mm-hmm. Let's make these filmmakers, and we'll make Hollywood come to us. And that's what we've been committed. So this making a hundred filmmakers, I have. Uh, we started in October, 
and I'm literally teaching for free. <laughs> this is through my nonprofit. I am giving them on-the-job trainings. They come work on sets. They come learn the skill set, and I force them to create a project. Um, when I was on the set of Soul Damage, there was a young lady that was sitting in the audience. Had no idea she was watching every move I made. Had no idea she was even there. I was so overwhelmed with what was happening. When I was in New York last year, a young lady sent me a DM on Instagram. She said, can we meet? She said, I was an extra on your your project, but we didn't meet. So she finally came home. She said, I'm from Jackson. So she came back, and she, she uh, met me last year, and she said, on your set, I realized I wanted to be a filmmaker. I graduated from New York Film School in May. Wow. She said, I want to come back and work with you because I want other little girls to know that they can do this. So I have one young lady who was in my master class. She just did a play on Shakespeare in London. Wow. So we've created these relationships with uh, HBCU LA is an organization in LA that if you go to a HBCU and you have an interest in film, you come through the festival, you get you can get an internship. They have a 90% job placement rate. It's a play, paid internship housing in LA and New York for Pixar, Lionsgate, the big boys. So this is something that just has organically happened. And when I was addressing these young people in October at the, the film office meet and greet, I could see the desperation in their eyes. They wanted me to give them some magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. They are not going to help you. Mm. If we're going to get our rightful place, we're going to have to build our own table and, and make them come and sit at our table as opposed to begging for theirs. Yeah. Hulu has this, um, you know, we have a writer strike right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Hulu has this program called The Bear. <laughs> One of the writers were vocal about what their experiences had been. His contract to do the barrels for $43,000. And he said at first, he was like, you know something? To not have any money, that's really good. But his agent said, hold up. That's still, you still got to pay me. Still got to pay your manager. You still got to pay New York City tax. And you got to pay California tax. <laughs> yeah. So he said he would have made more money if he just would have worked in a restaurant. Wow. But it's because the dynamics in Hollywoods have changed so much that now you have conglomerates running Hollywoods and not families. So now you have the equivalent to Amazon saying, telling the Amazon drivers, you don't have enough time to have a bathroom break. Mm -hmm. You got to keep going. They're selling them illusions. Mississippi is right. It is ripe right now to be building the infrastructure because we got land, we got resources, but most importantly, we got talent. Yeah. And so what, what you mean by infrastructure is like people with the ability to do these jobs on like the crews and mm -hmm. the talent, the writing. That, Train skill set. That's what yes. you mean. Yeah. OK. Yes. The skill set. So the infrastructure is the people. The infrastructure is the people, but also the mindset. Mm -hmm. We have to become more entrepreneurial because if we become more entrepreneurial. There are platforms, there are streaming platforms like Tubi and stuff like this that it, it elimin eliminates needing a distribution company. But if we learn that we also have to create skill set, entrepreneurship, and marketing abilities, now we can control more of our destiny and make a greater profit than these folk are making in Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. Well, are you kind of seeing, like, the fruits of that now, like, it, since the time that you've been doing yes, this? Yes, I am. You know, we're, you know, we're, you know I, I, w w the people that we're reaching 
and how they're maturing and going about their way. You know, there are others other than this young lady that's at New York Film School, the young ladies in London. Some of the people started on uh, my first film, they're starring, some started in Kirk Franklin's Christmas. You know, they're, they're full-time in acting. My mother just reached out to me and said her daughter's just got did her first SAG film. And she's like, I never would have thought it was possible if you didn't say she got it. So yeah. now, four or five years ago, some of these kids that were in high school, now they're becoming adults. Right. And now they're starting to prosper. So it is starting. We're starting to see some fruit. Yeah. And so are a lot of these students and people interested, are they from the Jackson area or is this people all over the state that you're reaching out to? Well, primarily it's been in Jackson, but it's been available mm -hmm. to everyone. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we've actually been trying to acquire funding so we can have a greater reach throughout the state. Because I, you know, as you said, it's not Jackson, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we just did some projects in Vicksburg. Uh, Jackson is primarily where we've been based, but we want to get to the point that we, we take this throughout the state. Yeah. Well, and then I also read you are doing uh, high school kind of film camps, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, desire for this these type of programs. Didn't y'all have a lot, like three times the amount of people that uh, y'all had seats for or double yeah, or yeah, something like yeah. that? Yeah, we, uh, we partnered with the city last year and mm -hmm. we did a film camp with the city. Uh, the city reached me and they said, hey, would you develop a camp? Would you develop something for the young people? And I think we had about 20 spots, but it was like 70 people mm, you yeah. know, that had reached out and wanted to be a part. And it was a pilot program, so we didn't really know what we were doing because yeah. I knew I wanted to immerse them in every aspect of film. I didn't want them to be sitting in the classroom. I'm like, no, you're going to be on set. You're going to know what this feels like. You're going to know what, what it, how these breaks are. You're going to know about makeup, wardrobe. Uh, you're going to know how to you know, set your cameras. You're going to know it. So I, they actually shot remakes of Hidden Figures, uh, Black Panther, Bridesmaids, and, and they had to order their own costumes. So they're in full guard. Yeah. So they wigs. You know, the 50s dresses, bridesmaids' appearance <laughs> with the brides on, that little scene where they all got sick in the, in the, uh, in the bridal shop. So, uh, yeah, it was a totally immersive experience. So it was, it was great. Mm, that's awesome. Are you, do you have plans to do it again? If well, we're not, we're not partnering with the city this year. Oh, I, okay. I think the city is doing something. We are we're kind of working on some other projects that we're looking to be long-lasting yeah. past just the summer. Yeah. Well, you know, another way that you're kind of reaching out and working towards this goal is through the Jackson Film Fest, mm -hmm. which was started in 2020. Yeah. Um, and that happens, what, every July? Yes, right? it's, the, it's the last week in July. It's a week-long event uh, filled with uh, trainings, uh, screenings, uh, you know, workshops to try to get people more prepared and acclimated. We have industry professionals that come here to Mississippi. Mm -hmm. They're here for the week. They're offering their training, teaching them how to pitch. How do you pitch a show if you want to pitch a show to network TV? These are not just folk who are training you. These are the people who actually say yes. These are the people who give you the green light. So we've been very fortunate. We built a partnership with Ashley McFarland. She's part of AMC. Um, and she comes here to do her pitch camp inside of the festival. Uh, 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 Tania Stewart, who has been on the board since the beginning, she comes and do a master class on acting, uh, and she's totally phenomenal. And it culminates in a Black Tie Awards gala, kind of Oscar-ish, uh, at the convention center. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, how long have y'all been doing the film fest? When did you start? <laughs> we this? started in 2020, and it was totally virtually then. Yeah. yeah. It was the Tech Jackson Film Fest. We were still partnering with the city, 
and um, a minute and a half. We did it that first year, and then we broke off, and we've been doing it for three years on our own. Wow. Well, you know what? We're actually going to have your colleague Esther Young Good be people. on the show in July to promote the Jackson Film Fest. So uh, stay tuned for that uh, in Absolutely. mid-July. So we're going to take a deep dive to the Jackson Film Fest. But uh, we're almost out of time. So I want to um, I just really enjoy talking to you and learning about your career. Where can people find your work, your novels, your films, your nonprofit, Sorpreneur? Yeah, you actually you can go to Sorpreneur.org. You can go to Jackson, JXN Film Festival. Uh, dot com. The books are on Amazon, or you can just reach out to me personally at Maximus at Sorpreneur.org for a signed copy. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.